This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the role of cyber warfare on today's battlefield and recommendations from a founding member of Israel's National Cyber Directorate. Then, making food a bigger priority at the Food and Drug Administration and improving the health and safety of Americans. And a preview of the National Defense Strategy is public. A look at the document shaping the Pentagon's policies over the next few years. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The West is on heightened alert to cyber attacks from Russia. But while it is part of the war fighting domain, cyber attacks don't win wars. That's according to retired General Daron Tamir. He served in the Israel Defense Forces and was a founding member of Israel's National Cyber Directorate. Daron, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, you know, you say that cyber warfare doesn't win wars, but what can cyber do in a conflict? Well, uh, you know, uh, during wartime, uh, uh, states are more likely to activate uh, states level uh, attacks, which uh, requires uh, a deep analytical, technological uh, research uh, capabilities, which uh, then those who possess the group of uh, hackers. The war in Ukraine uh, demonstrates us that the ability to uh, of militaries to conduct uh, ground uh, ground force uh, maneuverability uh, remains a very influential factor uh, to deciding the uh, outcome of war. Cyber attacks are very significant and uh, very influential, but it cannot win the war alone, such uh, air force or or uh, uh, artillery. It's uh, very supportive, the main uh, effort, but it cannot stand alone. So what, Having said that, what, yeah, what would you please. say make the best cyber targets during a conflict? Well, there are a few circles of targets of cybersecurity. When we're talking in a wartime, so the the influence of the battle on the battlefield and then uh, the influence of the outer circle which is the critical infrastructure of the opponents of the other side which means the electricity the power plant of uh, water power plants uh, communication etc so let me so but let me ask you uh, sorry to cut you off but let me ask you about the those communication networks during a conflict because you say that you know a combatant disrupts that communication network, it also degrades their ability to eavesdrop and monitor their adversary's communications. Explain that. Yeah, well, it, it's always a dilemma. When you want to jam the other side, when you want to jam the other side communication, it means that you are not listening. So you have to 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 plan what you would like to have some kind of advantage and it depends on the time the situation of course 
and what you want to achieve as a target uh, in the cyber attack. You know, I wonder what military lessons that you're drawing from the war in Ukraine. Ah, well, many till now, but we don't know now the all full uh, uh, information. Not about the maneuverabilities of the forces there. And still, I think the Russian now stacks in a kind of attrition war, which is not good uh, for nobody. Nobody wins attrition war. And uh, according to, I, I will say that even in 2022, uh, boots on the grounds are decides what is the who who wins the the battle conflict. You served as a founding member of Israel's National Cyber Directorate. What did you learn there that cyber policymakers here in the U.S. can apply? Well, first I have to say that, uh, you know, in the beginning and till now, the relationship between uh, the American administration and the prime minister office in Israel, which the INCD is, is, uh, belong to, uh, are very, very, very strong, and we are looking eye on eye uh, on the same challenges uh, to find out what kind of uh, technological development we have to both to um, to establish and to require for the for the future, and the second is to cooperate about uh, alert position during alert time, uh, sensitive times, and to, of course, uh, to share information, which is very critical, uh, especially in a war time. You know, you've said that uh, in parallel with the cyber domain is psychological warfare. What are you seeing um, in, U in the Ukraine war in that respect? Wow. I, I mean, this is one of the main, main factors that I recognized. Uh, the psych psychological warfare uh, from both sides, by the way, um, uh, had been uh, very heavy. And uh, therefore, I think uh, we now have some difficulties, you know, to analyze or to evaluate the information that both, both sides are faking uh, to the outside. Uh, I, I believe it's a very influential factor for the morale of uh, the troops and the soldiers and, of course, of the people of the countries. All right. Well, we'll see how this plays out. Thank you so much, Daron, for being on the program. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be with you. Coming next, Consumer Reports says that the FDA needs to up its game on food safety. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Consumer Reports is a nonprofit organization that advocates for truth, transparency, and fairness in the marketplace. And they're looking at improving food safety and nutrition oversight at the Food and Drug Administration. Brian Ronholm is the director of food policy for Consumer Report. He's the former deputy undersecretary for food safety at the USDA. Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. So there was an op-ed in Politico that said this, quote, 
the food side of FDA is approaching failure mode because of the low priority of food within FDA, the agency's fragmented organizational structure for food and the lack of sustained and empowered leadership from the top. Break that down for us, Brian. First, how is food a low priority at the FDA? Yeah, everyone, especially consumers, depends on the agency to perform its role effectively. And so we need to have confidence in their ability to do that. But it's becoming increasingly clear that the public confidence is in jeopardy. You know, the, the running joke among those of us who work on food policy is that the F and the FDA is silent. And it's become a running joke because it's a dynamic that has been going on for years and has led to serious problems within the food program as it relates to structure, governance, and performance, as you mentioned. So one of the issues pointing to how we got here is the lack of a single full-time, fully empowered expert leader of all aspects of the food program um, at the FDA. And I, I guess a lot of it has to do with that organizational structure. So drill down a little bit on that and what the problem there is and how that impacts food safety. Sure. So over the, in, in you know recent decades, most of the FDA commissioners that have been appointed have been medical specialists who naturally focus on the drug and medical device programs, biologics, tobacco, et cetera. So this leadership is this leadership focus is justified when you consider the significant impact that these programs have on public health. But this means that in the in the competition for commissioner time and support, the food program is a second-class citizen within the FDA. So no commissioner has the bandwidth to provide strategic leadership and management accountability to set a program that regulates 80% of our food supply. So as a result of all of this, you know, food gets lost in the shuffle. And I wonder what the funding for the food side of FDA's work indicates about its priority level for the agency. No, that's that's a, a great question. And, and that's kind of one of the governance problems that the agency is facing. Because over the years, what we've seen is despite an increase in overall funding, we've actually seen food inspections go down. And so that points to a, certainly a, a management issue that exists within the agency that needs to be addressed. And it also speaks to the fragmented structure of how the food program is organized within the agency. You have several centers reporting directly to the commissioner, all have responsibilities over the food program. So that creates a dynamic that it's, it's difficult to organize, it's difficult to manage. So what is the Food Safety Modernization Act? So that was a comprehensive food safety law that Congress passed over 10 years ago um, and then was signed into law in 2011. 2012. And since then, there's been a very slow implementation of the food safety rules that are associated with the enactment of that law. And that's one of the governance the management issues that the agency is facing. So there's still a lot of a lot of pieces of that rule that have yet to be rolled out. And a, a big part of that is a, a new proposed rule that was released relating to the regulation of ag water um, that, uh, you know, on the surface, it, it it, it doesn't require any testing. And in some respects, it's actually weaker than existing voluntary industry standards. So, you know, the problems that FDA has with implementing FISBA certainly points to the overall problem of uh, structure and governance, absolutely. And I guess, I mean, I don't have to state the obvious, but, you know, food safety, I mean, people can die from, from contaminated food. So if you could describe some of the biggest threats to food safety that the FDA would need to be concerned about. 
Yeah, I, I think it's easy to point to recent examples. Certainly over the, the past several years, you've seen several outbreaks related to leafy greens, fresh produce, um, and, you know, and that speaks to the importance of implementing these uh, food safety rules to address prevention issues. So with that slow implementation of these rules, you, you certainly create some problems. You know, so there are other problems. Uh, the recent infant formula recall and the and the opaqueness that is emanating from the agency as it in, in terms of pushing information out to consumers and it's it, it's created a really tough situation and it's it's unfortunate that we were at a point where we know bar, know more about what's going on in Ukraine than we knew do about what's going on with the infant formula recall so when you add those issues you you look at toxic heavy metals and baby food uh, the produce uh, rule the, the the infant formula these are issues that are stacking up and that need the focus of a dedicated person to focus on it. And what do you think are the likelihood, the likelihood of having that dedicated person with the authority to focus on what you think needs to be done? I, I think it's, it's a, a high likelihood that this could happen. I, I would hope that the new commissioner, Robert Califf, would scrutinize these programs and, and take a look at what's best for the agency. There's certainly a lot of dedicated, passionate professionals at the FDA working on these issues. And we need to make sure that their talents are adequately leveraged so that consumers are protected and foodborne illness rates uh, are declining. I mean, it's absolutely critical that, that these issues receive the attention by the commissioner and the appointment of a dedicated professional to focus on it. And Brian, you used to be the Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at USDA. If you could That's briefly right. just explain how the responsibilities are split between USDA and the FDA. Absolutely. So kind of the rule of thumb to use when you're uh, considering the authorities of, of the agencies is the food, ins the food Safety and Inspection Service at USDA has authority over meat, poultry, processed egg, and catfish products. And the FDA has authority over almost everything else. So that, that works to be an 80-20 split. So I think if you were to design a food safety program from scratch, it certainly wouldn't look like the way we have it now. All right, well, Brian, we appreciate you bringing this to our attention. Thanks so much for being on the program. Sure, thanks for having me. Take care. Coming next, the document that sets the Pentagon's policies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a preview of the National Defense Strategy. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. While the unclassified version of the National Defense Strategy is not yet public, the fact sheet that has been released raises some questions about the strategy that will guide Pentagon policymaking. Barry Pavel is Senior Vice President at the Atlantic Council, former Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Defense Policy and Strategy on the National Security Council staff. Barry, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So let's start with the threat. Uh, your report says, quote, how Russia is perceived in DOD must absolutely change going forward. Why is that and how should it change? So since the end of the Cold War, um, Russia has not really be been considered a, a major threat. So this is a very long time and the culture in a large um, organization like the Pentagon changes very slowly. And so for a very long time, I'd say 20 years, kind of, Russia's been considered as kind of pesky, uh, annoying, but not nearly as challenging as the, you know, the large economic superpower 
China and, and the Chinese People's Liberation Army forces. Those forces have been growing in capability and number for a very long time. Uh, China's leadership is very ambitious. Um, they want to displace the United States as the global leader. It's a hostile ideology, et cetera, et cetera. So I get China as a major threat, but um, you know, Russia's been considered a country in decline, so don't worry, they're getting weaker. Um, but you know, in the meantime, they have a, a leader who is very risk tolerant, uh, very revisionist, and they have a force that, although it has not um, performed in Ukraine, can be extremely damaging for um, the United States uh, you know, and for NATO allies. So I think it really has to change, but I, I worry that it's not changing quickly enough. We already saw Russia threaten Moldova over the last 48 hours, so another country. Um, there were some explosions and there are some warnings about them broadening the war as just another example. So NATO, you will see a change in NATO strategy in June at the summit um, as one response, but I think there needs to be a little bit more alacrity regarding the near-term threat that Russia poses under Putin or whoever replaces Putin whenever he leaves the scene. This is not a new phenomenon. The, Russia has been um, expansionist, insecure uh, for a very long time, and there's no guarantee that the next leader won't be just as bad as Putin. Well, Barry, continuing with the threat, because the worst case scenario threat is China and Russia allying against the U.S. So what's the strategy to handle that? That is the biggest worst case, worst case question. And so, um, you know, the United States has never before faced the possibility, or not since World War II, I guess, of uh, having to fight conflicts with two great powers at once. Um, on February 4th of this year, the two leaders of Russia and China signed a statement that said that their cooperation is without limits. That is a very serious thing for us to take into account. And so how can the U.S. military handle the, the volume of simultaneous military threats that might be posed at the same time? I think there's only three answers. One is um, intensive preparation in transforming the current force to the next force, the 2030s force, the force that is driven by AI uh, for command and control. It's a networked force. It features swarming un unmanned capabilities. It features hypersonic missiles. Uh, it's a very different force that leverages the advances in network communications for much greater military um, uh, uh, effect. That's number one. Number two, we need to bring allies into the tent in a way that is not um, uh, that is very different than it has been in the past. We've kind of been nice to them. We've kind of included an ally here and there and this and that. We need radical transformation of how the United States military cooperates with allies. It needs to be uh, what we call a latticed approach, where they are they are fully knitted into our intelligence sharing, into our plans where relevant, into joint research and development. Uh, we use their capabilities and they use ours. It just needs to be really close because we need their capabilities to deal with these two large threats. And then lastly, um, strategic forces, including nuclear. We sure wish that we could be on the road to disarmament, but Russia and China did not get the memo. They have been modernizing on a long-term basis and they have serious nuclear capabilities as well as 
uh, new long-range strike capabilities. We need to get with that program. We need to um, accelerate our nuclear weapons modernization program. Um, and we need to unfortunately rely on nuclear deterrence where there are situations where Chinese or Russian um, conventional forces outnumber ours plus our allies. It's so, not where we want it to be, but we got to do it. So, Barry, what do you think is the biggest thing missing from the strategy, from what you've seen? Um, I, 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 well, so far we haven't seen much. It's been, it's been a fact sheet. If, if I were, the one thing I would change is a very, very clear prioritization the large bureaucracy in the Pentagon wants to do everything. They want to do full spectrum dominance of everything, everywhere, all the time. I wish we had a trillion dollar defense budget that could do that. We don't. So the two great power threats, China and Russia, that's the priority. Iran, very serious. Uh, but is that nearly the priority that Russia and China are? I don't think so. So uh, work with Israel, work with uh, Gulf partners to uh, handle Iran. We need to focus on these two very significant threats. All right. And when well, decision makers leave the table, they need to be uncomfortable that there's other risks they can't handle. All right, Barry. Well, that's, uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
we use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.